chapter 15. And our text has been read, verses 1 through 11, already. Uh, I will just read at this point verse 5, just to refocus us. I suppose if I had to just pick one verse out of the text that perhaps summarizes the full text, I would say perhaps verse 5. The Lord says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Please join me in prayer. Father, would you uh, awaken us now, grant us attentiveness, hunger for your holy word, Grant me the capacity to speak clearly in the power of your Spirit. May it indeed be for the good of the souls present here and and be for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, asking also the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. They say that a picture is worth a thousand words. A biblical word picture, such as the one we have here, gives rise to a multitude of inspired words. This wonderful word picture, I am the vine, you are the branches. I think it's important to say as we begin, please understand that speaking here is the true Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now speaking into being a new Israel, the apostles, and then through them, all of God's elect. Let me take you back as we begin to Isaiah chapter 5. Israel was well known uh, as the vine. That was one of the pictures of God's people in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah chapter 5, we read this. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a vine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, and there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. 
if we are at all alive to God, this account must move our hearts. It begins with such a beautiful song of love to God's, of God's well-beloved, his vineyard, and wonderful expectations of a fruitful vineyard. But instead, it produces wild grapes, oppression, sin, to the point where the Holy One must judge his vineyard, must tear it down, must destroy the walls. And truly, we should weep. But now, in the fullness of time, comes the Lord Jesus Christ to make a new vineyard. I am the vine, you are the branches. We might think, well, won't the same thing happen again now? Won't it just be the same thing all over? And the answer is no. Sometimes the question is asked, what's new about the new covenant? Well, what's new about the new covenant is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of time who now effectually engrafts people into himself by his Holy Spirit who will soon be poured out in fullness. So with that in mind, I want us to meditate for a few minutes on the vine and the branches that our Lord Jesus sets forth. <clears throat> and the word picture generates descriptions of union and communion with Christ. That's what we're talking about when we speak of the vine and the branches. Union and communion with Christ. Would you listen then as I unfold this under three headings? First, let's consider the gift of union with Christ. Then let's consider the life of communion with Christ. And then let us consider the fruit of union and communion with Christ. So first then, the gift of union with Christ. The Lord Jesus is doing a sovereign work. He is engrafting, has engrafted his disciples into himself in a living, converting way. And as I said, through their words and ministry then, he will do that same work to the full number of his elect. Verse 3, note the sovereign work here. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And verse 5, the Lord of the vineyard says... I am the vine, and you are the branches. And then just a bit beyond our text, just to drive this home, verse 16, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Do you see? That, that union with Christ is a gracious work of God. It is God's sovereign work. It is not our achievement. And that must be our starting point. Back in college days, I had a couple of classes in which I was studying Eastern religions. Not as an adherent of them and not even really believing they were true. But I, I did some reading in Buddhism and Hinduism. And it is very clear in those religions that union with God quote, unquote, is your achievement. 
It, it, it is through a, a mixture of disciplines and meditations and even self-mutilation that you may achieve, quote-unquote, union with God. In one sense, medieval mysticism was similar. It was through practices and through disciplines and perhaps beating yourself and fasting that you might achieve union with God. Come to think of it, every religion and philosophy that fallen man comes up with has that shape, doesn't it? It is through our efforts, disciplines, meditation, works, we will achieve union with God. Biblical Christianity is precisely the opposite. Biblical Christianity says union with God is a sovereign gift of God. It is a grace of God. It is His work. It is another way of saying salvation is by grace through faith. One of the word pictures that parallels the vine and the branches to speak of union and communion with Christ, and it's been alluded to in the earlier service and some of our singings, the picture is marriage. Even as a man becomes one flesh with his wife, even so we become united to Christ. Romans 6, verse 24, speaks of this. Uh, we have been, <clears throat> not verse 24, but in, in Romans 6, we have, we have become united to Christ in his death, and resurrection. And then in chapter 7, verse 4, Paul is using this to speak of marriage. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. Do you see? Paul speaks there of union with the crucified and risen Savior under the picture of marriage, husband and wife for life. Salvation is by grace. Union with Christ is a gift. A marriage defines our identity as a major part of our existence, at least it ought to, in a godly marriage. Even so, union with Christ defines the identity of the Christian. Have you been united to Christ by grace through faith? If not, or if you're uncertain, I urge you to seek that, to plead with God for such a work, to unite Him, to unite you to Himself by grace through faith. Speak with your pastor about it. And if you have been united to him by faith, and I'm sure many of you have, then I urge you to rejoice in him. Rejoice in the wonderful, priceless gift you've been given of union with Christ. The gift of union with Christ. We could say so much more about it. The second point is now the life of communion with Christ. We had a uh, communion service earlier. I came to the Lord's Supper. 
and I haven't had the opportunity to be around the table and have a common cup since Scotland, and it was wonderful. I enjoyed that. When we speak of the life of communion with Christ, we're really talking about living out the reality that we just tasted at the Lord's Supper. In a sense, not sacramentally, but in a sense, the daily living of the Christian life is, is the Lord's Supper, is living it out. If, if union with Christ, if I may say it this way, is our wedding day, then communion with Christ is our ongoing married life. Paul describes this in different words. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a wonderful statement that is. And there in one verse, there in one sweet compass, is the life of communion with Christ. Now the word that our Savior uses here a number of times is the word abide. And it is a commandment to us. That we, as those who have been united to Him by faith, are to abide in Him. That is, to remain in Him. To dwell in Him, we might say. To rest in Him, we might say. And let us also not forget to obey Him. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Abide in His love for us. In that, in that personal relationship with Him. How sweet that is. Not mediated through rituals or mystical experiences or the efforts we make, but a personal connection of the soul with our God. Abide in Him. Again, if, to shed some more light on what it means to abide in Him, uh, let me just highlight a few of the verses that were read for us from Psalm 37. Because here I think is, as, because Scripture interprets Scripture, if you ask me, okay, but fill that out. What does that mean, to, to abide in Christ? Well, uh, Psalm 37 is indeed very helpful. Verse 3, what does it mean to abide? Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Note the dwelling word, the idea of, of agriculture, of planting, of growth, of vineyard. Verse 4, delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thy heart. That's abiding in Christ. Verse 5, commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Verse 7, what does it mean to abide in Christ, to commune with him? Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. If you are reading and pondering what it means to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, go back to Psalm 37, and I think that will help us a great deal as we live out our union with Christ in communion with him. My wife and I were at Chick-fil-A, I think it was two weeks ago. We were having lunch. We were sitting there enjoying our lunch. And 
There were some people at the table across the way, and we heard them talking, couldn't help but, we weren't eavesdropping, but, well, I guess we were, but we couldn't help but hearing them. And uh, it, it was obvious that two of them were bosses, they were managers, and a couple of the other people were new employees. And the bosses were going over the rules and what, you know, what phone number you call if you can't make it to work and all that kind of stuff. And then the one manager said, when you put that uniform on, you represent us. And we expect you to reflect that in the way you speak and act. I thought, wow, she could be talking about discipleship, couldn't she? That's how we would describe Christian discipleship. If we have clothed ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, my friends, we, well, we represent him. And that should be reflected in the way we speak and in the way we act. May it be so. Another, just again, just a, if you'll indulge me, another word picture of abiding. Um, and I guess I don't find this directly tied to, to abiding, although maybe in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones. But, but abiding is like breathing, I think. Abiding in the Lord Jesus. Breathing is about the most basic thing we do, is it not? I'm sure you could find, go online and find out how many, times, how many breaths we take typically uh, in an hour. I don't know the answer to that. I, I could have looked it up, I just didn't. But you know what I mean. And it, it's, it's almost unconscious, is it not? It's just kind of below our consciousness. Sometimes we think about it. I suppose we think about it mostly if we have trouble breathing, if we have a cold or, or something like that. But, but communing with Christ really ought to be like that. That 24-7 reality, not, not that we should be unconscious of it, but, but so basic to our living the life. If I may say, the breathing, we breathe in God's Word on a regular basis. Uh, verse 7, the first part of the verse. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you. What does it mean to commune with me, the Lord Jesus is saying? Then let my words abide in you. To hear preaching, to read the Bibles in your home, to read it on your own, to meditate upon it. All that's breathing. It's breathing in the Word of God. And then breathing out. What is breathing out? Breathing out is prayer. In fact, we often take those same words that we've read and pray them back to the Lord. If you consider the latter part of verse 7, what a striking thing the Lord Jesus says. If you're abiding in the Word and our prayers will be shaped by this, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Let's not rush past that. That is a staggering statement. If you're abiding in the Word, that's the condition, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. There's lots of bad teaching around about prayer. And maybe you've been like me. At times I've found myself laboring to tell people what this doesn't mean. Well, it doesn't mean you'll get a nice vacation home if you just ask the Lord for it. Or it doesn't mean that you'll have immediate healing of every disease or anything like that. And, and I have told people, and it's right to tell people what something doesn't mean. But what does it mean? Positively. Our Lord surely means something here. 
and I believe he means Bible-rooted, Bible-shaped prayer will be answered. My friends, do you pray like you believe that? Like it makes a difference. Not, Not that we change God's mind, but that he reveals his mind. He reveals his his person and work through those answers to prayer. Oh, let us pray expectantly. It is a wonderful fruit and blessing of abiding in Christ. And, And let me say also, finally under this second point of mine, that abiding in Christ is utterly necessary for our life both positively and negatively, if I may put it that way. Positively, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except ye abide in me. You can do nothing apart from me, as Jesus also said in verse 5, which I read earlier. Comes to mind the, the sermon title from Jonathan Edwards. God glorified in man's dependence. That's what we're talking about. He is glorified as we depend upon him, and if we are going to live that abundant life that Jesus offers us, we must abide in him. But there is also a negative, and we should heed this. Verse 2, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. Notice, he takes away branches that don't bear fruit. Verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Don't make the mistake of thinking that our Lord is talking about the world here or even those out there, they don't care about abiding in Christ. They don't care about even making a profession, really, of looking like they're Christians, at least the non-Christians I know of up in New England. No, this is a warning to all who profess Christ carelessly or merely formally. They're not abiding in Christ. Hence, they do not bear fruit. Hence, they are not truly part and united to Christ. Please heed that warning. Let us not profess our faith carelessly or in a merely formal way. Oh, let us abide in Christ. Let us flee to him for salvation and having done so, commune with him all our days in that salvation. And then finally, thirdly and finally, I come to speaking of the fruit of of union and communion with Christ. Our Lord intends that much fruit will be born in his vineyard, that much fruit will come forth from the lives of those who abide in him. Verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Bearing fruit is for God's glory. I might also say it's for our health. Is it not a pathetic, sickly thing to see a plant, a flower that has no flower on it, 
to see uh, an apple tree that has no apples, uh, to see plants that, that, aren't, that, don't, that are just dry and, and shriveled up. No, our Lord intends that we would bear much fruit. There is something glorious about a plant that flowers. Is there not? There's something glorious about tree, a garden lushly uh, in harvest. There's something glorious about this time of year. The apple trees in New England are laden with apples. It's kind of a glorious thing to walk through an orchard like that and just see all the apples that have come to fruition. Our lives should be like that. I don't mean to embarrass my wife, but when it comes to flowers, she has a green thumb. House plants and flowers, she has a green thumb. God has just given her the ability to do that. Jesus is saying that God has a green thumb, if I may say that reverently. He is the master gardener. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman, and his intent and purpose is that his people bear much fruit. We don't do gardening because we don't have any, anything else to do. We do gardening because we want vegetables, right? Or we want fruit, or we want flowers, or whatever it is. Even so, the Lord has that purpose in his gardening. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, It is not profession, but fruit that glorifies God. And, and I'm sure that what he meant by that is, not that there's anything wrong with a profession of faith, we welcome that, but it is not mere profession, but fruit that glorifies God. And so the question then is, what fruit does our Savior have in mind here? I've heard different interpretations of it. Some have said, oh, it's the fruit of making more disciples and having more people come to Christ. Um, that's certainly desirable, but I don't think that's what our Lord is talking about here. Um, some have said, well, he means the fruit of the Spirit. I think that's closer to the point and is actually part of the answer that I would give. I believe verses 7 and 8 are connected. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, and so shall ye be my disciples. It seems to me the fruit he's talking about are those Bible-shaped prayers being answered. That's the fruit, and he is glorified in it. And certainly we need to pray much for the fruit of the Spirit to be manifested in our lives. We're all works in progress. But in particular, and again, this is one of those staggering things that our Savior says, he promises his disciples fullness of joy. Verse 11, which closes off the section, I think is our text. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you so that your joy might be full. Do you see our Savior's purpose? Is it that we would be anxious that we're not meeting his standards? No. That we would walk around with a load of guilt all the time? No. What is his purpose? As, we, as, we, as, as his word abides in us and as we live in the way I've been talking about, it's that my joy might remain in you. Notice, my joy the very joy I have in abiding in my Father's purposes 
might be in you. If we go over to John 16 and read verse 24, we find this same thing. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be made full. Note the connection there again between prayer, biblical prayer, being answered, and the result being joy. Don't you think a people who are joyful in the Lord probably glorify God more than people who are kind of gloomy and half-depressed all the time? I think so. And I'm not saying we manufacture this joy and put on a happy face. I'm saying as we abide and commune with Christ, our, our desires are shaped more and more by his word. We pray them, he answers them, and we find fullness of joy. My friends, what fools we are if we settle for anything less than union and communion with Christ. There are many children here. I love to see this congregation. I like to see the children. Children, there is nothing in this world that will ever give you fullness of joy. Single people, there is nothing in this world that will ever give you fullness of joy. Married people, there is nothing in this world that will ever give you fullness of joy. No matter how excited you are about your career or your house or your kids, those are great blessings. Grandparents, there's nothing in this world that will ever give you fullness of joy. The only source of fullness of joy is union and communion with Christ. So as we today go from Uh, An earlier service of the table, and now the table of the word. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us abide in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, may we now uh, not be like those who look in a mirror and go away unchanged. May we indeed um, continue to chew on these precious truths. Thank you for every believer in this room that you've united us to yourself by grace. We pray that there are such who are not united to you, that you would move them in that way and teach them and guide them. And help the rest of us to live and walk in a fruitful communion with Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.